The scripture reading today is taken from Romans chapter 8, verse 18 through 30. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. This morning, we're going to look again at Romans 8. So you should have your a worship folder in front of you, or turn your Bible to Romans 8. Um, I'm thinking of these last four sermons, as I've told you before, as a series of prayers for you and for the life of the church, for liberty in the coming weeks and months. And so the first two prayers were, one, that you would have a growing sense that God's Spirit is present and at work within you. That was a couple weeks ago. And this, uh, the last week, my prayer was that you would see yourselves as children of God. So in both of those things, that you would see yourselves as gifted in Christ by his spirit, reconciled to God and near to him so that you have power in your daily struggle against sin. And today, my prayer for you is that you would have a growing awareness of God's plan to restore not only yourself, but also all of creation. And that, that, that a sense of that plan and a sense of what is to come will help you and encourage you and comfort you in suffering and pain and in the trials that you face. So Paul has taken a, a good part of the, the time to talk about you and yourself and sin and, and how it applies the spirit to you personally. In this passage, he opens it up wide open and he says, you know what? The problem isn't only you. It's this broken world in need of repair. And he, he, he gives us this large vision for how to think about that and what to do. Um, so as we turn to Romans 8, let me, I'm just going to pray again and ask that the Lord would speak to us. Uh, Jesus, you have been faithful to this church. We thank you for the work that you are doing here by your spirit. We are weak, and at times, as Paul says, don't even know what to do or how to pray or what to say. 
but we know that your spirit is here and your spirit is present. Open up our hearts to hear and to speak and to be changed by that spirit. Would you pour very real comfort and encouragement out upon the people that you have called to yourself? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, I've been thinking about pain a good bit this week and suffering as I'm looking at the passage. And also that's come to mind because I'm reading a book, um, which is fascinating. It's called The Swerve. It's by Stephen Greenblatt. I'm not sure if any of you guys have heard of it. It won the uh, 2011 National Book Award for nonfiction. And in the book, um, Greenblatt argues that the discovery of an ancient manuscript, a manuscript written by Lucretius um, in the first century BCE, that the discovery of that manuscript in like the 1400s, the early 1400s, by a monk named Poggio transformed the course of the modern world. So that finding this one writing kind of resonated with so many people in the Renaissance that it changed the way humans think about themselves um, and the world, kind of paving the way for modern thought. It's fascinating. I know it sounds pretty geeky, <laughs> but it's, it's totally fascinating. So um, basically, here's why. Lucretius again, who I said was writing in the first century BCE, denied the existence of a creator. He believed the world was made up of tiny moving particles called atoms, which is fascinating that he he thought that. He thought that change happened through a process of natural selection. And he argued that we should therefore spend our lives in the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. Sounds like the word on the street in 2011, 2012, doesn't it? It's amazing, totally fascinating. And um, here's what really interested me um, about Greenblatt, and that is right in the middle of the book, he takes a, a, a stab at Christianity, a, a critique, an evaluation. So he's like following this manuscript as it works its way through time. And in the medieval period, he basically says, okay, this is what Christianity prom- promoted. And what he does is he basically divides the world into two categories. You can either um, follow Christianity which according to Greenblatt is a philosophy based on the life and teaching of Jesus Christ, which promotes self-denial, pain, and suffering. It's centered on those things. Or, he says, you can follow a philosophy based on the life and teaching of Epicurus, who we know very little about, in fact, and Lucretius was a follower of Epicurus. And that's one which promotes the avoidance of pain and the pursuit of pleasure. And he says, and I think it's a really keen insight, he's basically like, those are your choices. That's what you've got. And he says that the the modern world, for the good of humanity, has chosen the second path. And he traces these lines from Lucretius to Freud and to Darwin. It's fascinating. It's really interesting. And to um, Thomas Jefferson and to Einstein and to others. And um, here's what I thought while I was reading the book. I thought, you might find Greenblatt's idea really attractive. You might find that idea that, hey, maybe we're just here to pursue pleasure and avoid pain, something that you would like to believe. Wouldn't it be easier to think that this life is all there is? Wouldn't it be easier to think that you could trust yourself to handle everything? Wouldn't it be easier just to reject a God who would allow evil in the world, who would allow suffering in the world, who would allow pain in the world? Um, Wouldn't it be easier to pause when you read that heirs with Christ suffer with him? 
chapter 8, verse 17 from last week and say, I'm not sure I want to follow this Jesus character if that's what it's going to mean. If that's what it's going to involve, what's this thing all about? Wouldn't it be easier to pursue pleasure despite the deaths, despite the accidents, despite the diseases, despite the disabilities, despite the fear, despite the rejection? And um, here's what I've been thinking this week. It may be attractive, but I can't find a way to make the fear go away just by wishing it would go away. I can't find a way to make death go away by simply wishing it wasn't there. And I haven't found a way to pursue pleasure without it turning into indulgence, without it turning into overindulgence. Greenblatt is really keen to say there is a difference between, between pursuing pleasure in moderation and hedonism, just full-blown going for everything you want, but I can't find a way to separate those two that's not arbitrary. I feel like we live in a culture that does nothing more than pursue pleasure, and it seems to be the loneliest, most depressing, most frustrated culture maybe that the world has ever known, although it's the only one I've lived in, so I can't substantiate that. I'm assuming that they've all been this way to some extent. And not only that, but I think his argument is, and I I pray that I'm being fair to him, um, but I think his argument is an argument that it's easy to make from a privileged position, from a middle-class position, from a, um, um, a, I'm a, a professor at Harvard position. It's easy to say, go and enjoy your life. But in fact, most of the world, tell that to most of the world who are out just looking to find where the next meal is going to come from. Where's the hope there? Where's the help there? Where are the answers there? And what amazes me again, what amazes me about the marvelous passage that we read and about Paul's words in Romans 8 is that he doesn't wish the pain away. He doesn't ignore the pain. He doesn't fall back on promoting his own self-interests. He doesn't fall back on promoting his own desires. He doesn't fall back on what comes most naturally. He's not trying to distract you from the pain. He's not just trying to numb the pain or to ease the pain. And, and on the other hand, he's not promoting pain as some end in and, of, in and of itself. No, he's simply seeing something that is more powerful than the pain. You get that? He sees something bigger than the pain. He sees beyond the pain. He sees through the pain. He sees over and underneath the pain. And he recognizes that in Christ, believers have been promised a future redemption. And that future redemption will mean not that the world will stop being, but that it will stop being broken. Not that you will not have a body anymore, but you will have a bodily life with no pain. And he calls this the restoration of all things. He calls it glorification. And in shorthand, he just says glory. It's glory that awaits you in a new heaven and a new earth. And he says, because you can hope in Christ for that future resurrection, for that future uh, redemption, you can hope now and take comfort now in his spirit when you face temptations and when you face trials and when you face sufferings of all kinds. One of the problems is, in other words, when you look to pleasure as an answer to pain, you're still stuck in the present. And Paul wants to pull you out of the present. He wants to give you a big picture view that involves future, present, past, the entire course of human history without ignoring it in order to help you in the present. And these are the three things that I think he wants you to see. 
First of all, there is hope for you who suffer. And I think there's those here who are suffering today, who are in pain, who are dealing with problems that are beyond you that you didn't cause and you don't know how to handle. And he's saying, one, there is real hope for you that comes to those who suffer. Secondly, he says that the spirit will help those who suffer in a very real way in our weakness. And thirdly, he says this, the spirit is the spirit of a God who has a plan and a will and who is personal and who arrives and visits you and knows all things that will happen to you. Those things, even that include suffering and pain and the trials that you go through. Okay. So let's look at those three things um, a little bit more closely. First of all, There is certain hope for you in the spirit. Take a look back. We're going to look at verses 18 through 25 first. Look back first at verse 18. Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That is an amazing statement. Hang on to that statement. It's his summary statement, and everything else that he says in the next seven verses, even the next 10 or 12 verses, are going to be an explanation of that. And look what he's doing. He refuses to look at suffering by itself. He refuses to to, um, become bogged down in the fog of suffering and of pain. And he's not comparing it to pleasurable distractions. He basically says, look, I'm going to weigh two things in the scales. I'm going to weigh two things in the balance. And it's sort of like, if you can imagine one of those ancient scales, you know, and he's holding the two. And he says, A, over here I've got present sufferings, the pain in the world that I feel. And over here... I've got future glory. And what Paul says is really remarkable. He says, those things aren't just teetering in the balance. It's not sort of like one maybe is weighing out or the other. The scale sort of does something like this. He says that the weight of glory is so intense. It's so heavy. It's so powerful. It's so substantial that it makes suffering now, as he said, Second Corinthians, look like light and momentary troubles. Light and momentary troubles. And here's the deal. Does that point seem impossible to imagine? It feels impossible to imagine. But if it does, you have to look at what he does next. Take a look at what Paul does next in the next seven verses. He starts talking about creation. And you could be tempted to be like, where are you going with that? That's kind of, I'm not sure that I can follow you, but watch this, what he does. In verse 19, he says, look, here's what I want to tell you about creation. Creation waits with eager longing for future glory and redemption. And then in verse 20, he says, creation, it's waiting waiting for glory because it was subjected to fertility. And then look down at verse 22. He says, the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. So creation is waiting Creation is frustrated in some way. Creation is groaning. He is picturing creation as um, kind of like Sisyphus. Do you guys remember the, the ancient myth of Sisyphus? Sisyphus is the guy who was condemned to have to roll a boulder up a hill. And like every time he gets to the top, it rolls back down. And sometimes our lives feel like that, that frustration. Paul's saying, you're not the only one that feels that way. All of creation feels that way. All of creation is so frustrated and so futile that it's sort of like rolling a boulder up the hill that just continues to fall back on itself. And what that means is creation is as broken as you. The world is not what it should be. This world is not what it should be. But how weighty will eternal glory be? It will be so weighty 
that it will fix not only what is broken in you, but the things in the world that are broken that break you. Do you get that? Even the things in the world that are broken that break you will be removed. Diseases, natural disasters, unexpected death. And by extension of those things, running to pleasures is very limited because creation itself isn't even satisfied with itself. Do you see? It's not what it was meant to be. There has to be more. And he wants you to hope in that which is more. Look at verse 24 and 25. Paul says, For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. It seems like a self-evident thing. If you have something, you don't need to hope for it anymore. If you don't have it, you're left looking for it and longing for it. Here's um, an analogy. What, what, what I want you to think about is, is this. Having a future hope should actually change the way that you think and believe and behave presently. Presently, And here's how this works. I'm going to give you an, an analogy. It's one of my favorite stories to tell. Um, I apologize because some of you have heard it. I use this at the leadership retreat, um, but it's really, it's my favorite story that illustrates this point. Back when I was in college, I spent a summer studying in Germany. And um, while I was in Germany, during one weekend, our professor took us on a trip to go hiking in the Austrian Alps. Okay, and it um, should be beautiful see- scenery and everything, but the morning that we woke up, it's pouring, it's foggy, it's cloudy, and we're all like, okay, I think I'm just going to sleep in until 10 or 11, but Uli, who's our professor, comes and says, you know, no, we must go hiking. <clears throat> <laughs> and he is, okay, so here's, you've got a picture, two groups of people, okay, American college students. So we're on this hike, and it's like, you know, it's foggy. We can't see anything. There's brambles and bushes, and we're going this way and that, and it's rocky, and and we're wet, and we start complaining, and we're miserable. And then there's Uli, who is the stereotypical German. So he is stocky. Okay, good. All right, we're back. One One of the main points of the sermon later will be don't take yourself too seriously, so... We won't. Okay, so Uli's running around like, like crazy. He's smoking cigarettes. We're tired and upset. And, and it's like at the moment where we think we can't go any further, where the, the hill is just like straight up and there's foggy clouds up here. Suddenly what happens, and I, I really, this is a mystical experience, but the clouds kind of parted away. And there's a little house up there, like a little shack. And then, you know, somebody says, what's that? And Uli says, oh, the first beer station. <laughs> and we're like, I mean, immediately, instantaneously, what happens is like our backs straighten, <laughs> our smiles emerge on our faces. We start walking so much quicker <laughs> because what the Austrians do, they go hiking so much, they know that people are going to get tired on these journeys and on these adventures. And so what they've done is they've stationed throughout the Alps beer stations, which is just what it sounds like. It's a place where you can go in the middle of the hike. You can kind of kick off your boots, drink a little beer, eat some goulash, and just kind of talk to your friends and regroup, and then go another couple miles till you get to the next beer station. It's amazing. It's genius. <laughs> and um, here's the point of the analogy is this. Think about what a difference it makes 
especially during times of trial, especially during times of difficulty, to have something to look forward to, to have something to hope in. The only difference between Uli and between the students is really that he knew what to expect. He knew where he was going. He knew what to look forward to, and he knew there would be rest ahead. And when we saw that, we too forgot about ourselves. We forgot about our small worlds. We forgot about our cold feet. And we simply moved forward. You see, hope in future glory, it kind of works as a conditioner. It conditions your present attitudes and actions. All right. Secondly, that's the first point, hope. Hope in future glory. Secondly, there's not only hope in the future, but there's also present help for the Christian that suffers. Look at verse 26 and 27. Paul says in verse 26, the spirit helps us in our weakness. And what Paul's doing is he's returning to what's a fundamental proposition for Paul. It's that you are weak. It's that you can't get it together yourself. It's that you need help that comes from the outside. So listen to me. Sometimes the pain in this life is unbearable. Sometimes it is unbearable. Sometimes it hits you so hard you can't even see straight, doesn't it? Sometimes it's coming from every angle. You sin against somebody, they sin back at you. You're trying to rely on Christ, but the next door neighbor and the guys you work for are making fun of you because you're a Christian and you're taking flack for that. Some unexpected suffering happens. A family member rejects you and you're just trying to navigate your way through the waters, but it is simply too much in this life. It's so much so that you probably agree with Paul in verse 26. We do not even know what to pray for. I don't know where to look. I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. He never minimizes that pain. And maybe you don't know where to begin in your prayers or how to emerge from the depression or how to face the darkness. But Paul's saying, throw yourself nonetheless on the very mercies and the graces of God. Throw yourself on the spirit because the spirit as he goes on to say, himself will intercede in groanings too deep for words. And then when God the Father is searching your heart, he sees the Spirit. He hears what the Spirit is saying, and he knows it's groaning on you and for you and on your, in your behalf. See, the Spirit of God brings real help. Look at how much groaning is happening in this passage. The, the Spirit is, is engaging you on, a, on an intensely deep and personal level. So you have creation groaning, and you have people that are groaning, you're groaning, and then God's spirit joins in with the groaning. And that means shaping you in ways that you cannot feel or know or even begin to articulate. I don't think what Paul's saying is that we have some secret prayer language and we're expressing, um, you know, thoughts and reflections that aren't in actual words. I think what he's saying is the spirit is going crazy inside you, doing things that you aren't prepared for, that you aren't ready for, that you don't know how to explain, and the Spirit of God is there. Look for him there. Don't remain on an abstract level. Don't remain on a rational level. Look for him in the deep groanings of your heart. He's there, and he's interceding for you, which is good news, because that means you have two intercessors. You have Jesus Christ, who has risen to heaven, to heaven, and where he is standing up for you, And he's praying to God the Father and saying, don't look at their sin, look at me. Don't look at their sin, look at me. And then inside you, if you are a Christian, you have the Spirit who himself is saying, help this one. 
Help this one in their suffering. Help this, your child. I am there with you. So you never are facing the pain alone. You're not facing it alone. That is such good news. The Christian doesn't face the pain alone. Think of the alternative. Think of the alternative. Sitting alone in your room, crying yourself to sleep at night, caged in a corner, or coming together to join with others in worship. And to know that that spirit is an advocate for you. It's an advocate like in a legal courtroom. You know, if you think of like a courtroom drama that you see on TV, the spirit is there pleading your case, acting for you on your behalf. And he's using this unintelligible language that you can't even understand like some lawyers do. (laughs) No offense to those present. (laughs) But that's good because he knows the books. He knows how this works. He knows your heart. He's representing you. And I'll be honest with you, I think these two verses are as freeing as Romans 8-1. They're as freeing as no condemnation for those who believe in Christ Jesus, for those who are found in him. And this is why. Because many of you may be struggling. You may not be going, some of you may be going through intense pain. Others of you may just be struggling on a day-to-day attempt to relate to God. You know the facts, you know the truths, you grew up in the church, maybe, maybe you didn't, and you, you, you can articulate some things, but you don't feel it. You don't, you, don't, you don't have the power and the passion of his spirit moving through you and changing you and transforming you. And for you, if you want to know how to open up to him relationally, go to him remembering these things. Here's a couple things to remember. One, a bad prayer is better than none at all. That doesn't sound very profound, but listen to this. (laughs) This is what I think this passage is saying. A weak prayer, a wrong prayer, a bad prayer is better than none at all. God is not a pedantic school teacher. God is not a cruel taskmaster. He's not grading you on your presence. He's not grading you on the specific words you say. He's not worried about the specific, precise wordings of those things. You see, because he is a father who lovingly cares for you and wants to receive you and your spiritual life is not a new set of laws. It's not something that's constricting. It's not something that's constraining how often we teach it that way. No wonder folks like Greenblatt look at the history of Christianity and think, I don't want that. It looks like a new law. It looks like more constricting. It looks like a set of burdens that would bind people. But God is inviting you to come like a four-year-old child comes to a father. You know how a four-year-old child comes to a father? Hang out with some (laughs) four-year-olds. It's random. (laughs) You know what I mean? They're like talking about all sorts of things, and you think, what are you talking about? It's, it's, um, they're, they're, sometimes they mumble. Sometimes they're distracted. Like, hey, look, there's a plane over there. Sometimes they're uncertain. They don't know what to say. They don't know what to do. But what did they know? They know to sit in the father's lap because he's holding me and he cares for me. And that love is not contingent. It is not contingent upon a well-articulated request. I'll tell you one thing this morning. Jesus Christ is not saying to you, fix yourself up and then come to me. He's saying, come broken, come dirty, come abused, come suffering, come in guilt, come in shame, come with pain. I will take it on myself and transform you. Romans 8 should blow you out of the water. 
It should blow you out of the water because he's saying the condemnation of sin is gone. The frustrations of sin are gone. The wreckage that sin has caused will be gone because I am fixing you and this whole suffering creation. The ground beneath our feet is groaning for that day. Shouldn't we submit ourselves to his spirit and fall face first on the ground and say, come Lord Jesus, transform me Even me, I'm guilty, I'm a sinner, I'm broken, I'm suffering. I don't even know how to ask for it. Come to me. Those are the things that he is calling you to. This is the Jesus that you serve. This is the Jesus I am proud to defend to the atheists and skeptics and agnostics of the world. Number two, that's number two. Here's number three. The spirit is the spirit of God who has a plan. This God has a purpose and this God has a will. And that's just an extension of what we're saying. What we're saying is this is not an abstract philosophical concept, but you come to a personal God. You come to a personal God who is coming to take you in and receive you as a father. Look at verse 28. This is the famous verse. We know that for those who love God, all things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And what I believe Paul is saying here is that God's people, those are the people who are marked out. What could define you as God's child? Those who have, again, not rules, not regulations and stipulations, but love for him that he has planted within you. Those people can endure the sufferings of this present life. Why? Um, because, and these are just the words of a commentator that I read, nothing can harm them in an ultimate sense. In an ultimate sense, you can't be snatched away. You can't be beaten down so much that you were removed entirely from God. They are small and momentary and light, or better than that, he is taking the great, huge, painful wreckage and making it more momentary in his power and in his presence. And that was his plan. That was his plan. Everything Paul said is true because a personal God is calling you to himself even this morning. And you can know him. And you can know he will work in the future because he's already worked in the past. And that's what verses 29 and 30 are about. He says, For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And listen to this and listen to it all in past tense. Those he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. How certain is future glory? Future glory is as certain as the historical fact that Jesus Christ died and has risen again, that he walked into death, turned out the other way, and has, has conquered over it, that he's reigning and ruling now and sending his spirit. So what Paul is saying is mysterious. He's saying when Jesus died, when Jesus was justified, when Jesus was called son of God, when Jesus rose and was glorified, you were somehow there with him. And what remains is for the spirit to apply, apply the power of those facts 
upon you now. So we do. We stand between two present, like I call, I think in, in Paul's thought, they're like pillars. What are those two pillars that sort of form a shadow over everything else that you think and everything else that you do? They are the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, died and rose from the dead. The fact that he will return in glory and will judge the living and the dead and restore all things. And Paul's, you know what Paul's doing? He's like looking back. Yes. He's looking forward. Yes. Thank you. He's looking back. And every time he wants to look down, to now, he has to look back and look forward and look back and look forward and look back and look forward. They're transforming the ways that he thinks. And how can they do that? They can do that because the spirit is there with him as a first fruits, it says in verse 23, as the down payment and as the guarantee. And so here's what Paul's doing. Paul is, I, I think Paul, aside from inspiration, aside from the Holy Spirit, aside from all that, I think Paul was probably just a genius too. You know, that's just my assumption. He is, he is redefining pain. You don't need to avoid the pain as if that was even possible. That's part of my point. I just don't think it's possible. But God is somehow using painful circumstances for your good. For your good. That doesn't mean run and become a martyr and try to get more pain. That's not what he's saying. That's aberrant. Okay, that's not correct. And it doesn't mean that all he is doing is sanctifying you as if he's cruelly causing these things to happen in kind of a mean manner. It means that the real life, it means the authentic life, it means the only life worth living is this life, the life that looks like Jesus's life. And what did Jesus's life look like? It was marked by a road of suffering to glory, which means it had a trajectory. It was going somewhere. There was a direction. The only alternative, Greenblatt's right, the only alternative to that is to believe that this is an accident, this whole life, to believe that it's just a bunch of swirling molecules banging against each other, to see yourself as, um, as trapped or as stuck in the present for some reason this week, I was thinking of Tom Hanks movies. Did anybody see The Terminal, like, maybe seven years ago? See, the alternative is you're Victor Navorsky. You can't speak the language. You don't know what's going around on around you, but you're stuck in an airport terminal, and no one will let you out, and you're just banging around, and you're not sure why or where you're going. See that? There's a, either a path from suffering to glory, or there's inexplicable suffering and occasional accidental delights that I can't explain. The other one I thought of was... Tom Hanks always gets in these movies, was um, Castaway, right? He's, what's the guy, Chuck Nolan, he's, he's stuck on an island, right? And he's, again, bouncing around and not sure and uncertain. And that's a very kind of postmodern way to see the world. Those are your options. But I would implore you, I would implore you to see the past crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus and the future return of Jesus Christ in his glory as present realities in your life. Invite the Spirit to pour the blessings of those things in on you now. And don't measure the present only by the present. Don't look for solutions to the present only in the present. Encounter your risen Savior, Jesus. Let him in. Let that trajectory of his life orient and reorient the trajectory of your life. You see, and Jesus is going to do crazy things to you. He will cause you to reconsider everything. He's going to change the way you think about death. He'll change the way you think about disease and the way you think about uh, your job and your relationships and this city. And he's going to take you into some uncomfortable places. I'll tell you that. That he will. And I was talking to somebody this week who said, when we invite people to become Christians, we hardly ever tell them to count the cost here in the West. 
here in America and what it might cost you. But Jesus will take you into some uncomfortable places for your good and his glory. It's the only life worth living. And the question should not